Okay. What are we here to do tonight? Oh, yeah, Genesis. I love Genesis. Um, do I have any announcements tonight? Uh, do I want to talk about the email? Yeah, but do I want to talk about the email? Okay, so we, we switched from one database to another database, and we're still having a little bit of trouble adding new people. So if you're still not getting the email, don't despair. Uh, you're in the queue, and we'll get you into the group just as soon as we can. It's a situation normal. Databases. Blech. Okay, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for a wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, this is a day you have made and we can rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, thank you for it. Uh, thank you for the, sir, the um, uh, worship service this morning. I know I was so encouraged uh, to reflect back over the book of Malachi and to hear how uh, you were working in people's lives, uh, nudging them awake. And so thank you for that. That really encouraged me too. And so I thank you for that. Uh, tonight, I pray your spirit would be here with us. Please be our honored guest, and please, Holy Spirit, be our teacher tonight. Take what is yours and make it part of us. We pray that you do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you got a funny cartoon that my son did a number of years ago. Uh, some of you have said, I'm not sure I get it. And so look at Pharaoh's left hand. He's holding a can of nuts. Now, do you know the can of nuts that has the spring snakes in it that pop out? So they gave Pharaoh a can of nuts. He opened it. The snakes popped out. Then they discovered that rumors of Pharaoh's sense of humor had been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, I thought it was really funny. Now that you get it, you can laugh along. It's very sophisticated humor. You have to really pay attention to it. Just like the lesson tonight. You have to pay attention to it or it'll run right by you. Okay, Genesis, a family tree of faith. Uh, we're studying through, through the book of Genesis. I believe in the way Moses, God through Moses, wanted us to go through it. And that is by using Moses's, Mo Moses? Moses's chapter divisions, which are the Toledotes. So whatever became of or whatever happened to. So whatever became of, 1 through 11, we did in one night. Whatever became of the heavens and the earth and everything that God created. Well, we found out lots of things happened in the first 11 chapters, but the point of those was to get me to chapter 12, which is whatever became of Terah. Whatever became of Terah, Abraham became of Terah. That's what happened to Tara is Abraham who received the Abrahamic covenant. And when I call you at two in the morning, I haven't started making those phone calls yet, but I will soon. You're going to tell me there are three characteristics of the Abrahamic covenant. They all start with you. Unilateral, good, unilateral. Unconditional, unending, unending. 
And then I'm going to ask you for the three things that were promised to Abraham. And you will say in unison, land, seed, and blessing. And we've seen in Genesis with the passing of going from Terah, who was Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that they have all received those promises handed down because that was the covenant. By the time we get to Exodus, when you start reading Exodus, it's going to say, then God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you're, instead of scratching your head, you're going to say, I know what covenant he's talking about. He's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, he is. He remembers it, and that's what causes God to step into what he's doing with Jacob's family, who has by now grown and developed down there. Okay, whatever became of Terah? Abraham became of Terah. He received the Abrahamic covenant, and we learned from Abraham that faith means living without scheming. Abraham, God told him who to pass it to. He passes the covenant to Isaac. We saw that his spiritual complacency led to decline. So all in the Isaac chapter, in the Isaac story, we see the story of Isaac. We also see the story of Jacob who wasted 30 years resisting and wrestling God, even though he wound up in a great place. He spent 30 years wrestling with God. So whatever became of Terah? Abraham. Whatever became of Abraham? Isaac became of Abraham and Jacob. The story of Joseph is in the Jacob story, which begins in chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob and his family. And then we don't get to Jacob really until the end of the book, excuse me, the end of the book of Genesis. So we have the story of Jacob is the story of Joseph, and his story is the way up, is the way down. One of the things that I love doing here and have the privilege of doing is getting to instruct younger pastors. Um, It's wonderful. Uh, I get to to instruct them, I get to coach them, and one of the first lessons that I teach them is this lesson, the Joseph lesson, Uh, because there's so much written about leadership today. If you read some of the secular books, I mean, there's hundreds, thousands of books on leadership. This is a leadership story, Joseph. And so these young men and young women want to, Bill, tell us about leadership. I said, don't worry, we're getting there. Here's here's some keys about leaders. They're not just born, they're made. Leaders aren't just born, they're made. Second, there's no crown without a cross. Third, if you're going to be used powerfully, then you will be tested profoundly. You want to be used powerfully, young man, young woman, then you will be tested profoundly profoundly. So know what it is that you think you're wanting to step into. Joseph is the story of someone who had to learn that the way up is the way down. And we see that written through all these chapters laid out in front of us. Um, Interestingly, Big idea for tonight. God's leaders must first become God's servants. The unwritten curriculum of God's school of hard knocks. That's what Joseph goes through tonight. 
I've been through, and some of you have been through more, um, I've been through 154 hours of graduate training, 122 for my master's, which is the same as an undergraduate, if you're counting. Uh, the master's of theology at Dallas Seminary is 122 hours. And those are real hours. Those aren't like half hours. You're like, they probably count different. No, they don't. <laughs> no, it's real hours, 122, and then another 32 for a doctorate. So 100, this is not for you to go, whoa, Bill, you're welcome to do that. <laughs> 154 hours of training to be, hopefully, a little bit better pastor. But do you know what? The most profound curriculum in my life, and I would imagine the most profound curriculum in your life, is not the written curriculum. It's the unwritten curriculum. It's the curriculum that God enrolls you in courses. You didn't know you were being enrolled into, but all of a sudden it's like those dreams you have where you, it's the last day of the semester and you're sitting in the class and your best friend is sitting next to you and says, you are allowed to bring a cheat sheet to the final. And you say, what final? I've never even been to this class. Well, you're enrolled. We enrolled together. You've never been here. I've wondered why you haven't ever been here. Do you ever have those dreams? Oh, my gosh, I have those dreams. God enrolls us in unwritten curriculum courses to teach and train us to be better servants for him. Joseph is about to be enrolled in three courses. Three courses with unwritten curriculum in God's school of hard knocks. I don't know about you, I've paid more tuition in the school of hard knocks than I've paid to any seminary or anything else. <laughs> I keep having to pay the tuition over and over and over because I'm just a slow learner. The unwritten curriculum of God's school of hard knocks, Joseph is going to be enrolled in that tonight and you might see yourself in there too. I'm going to break this up. I'm not, this is going to be like a stone hitting on the water. I'm likely going to leave out your favorite section or the question that you want answered out of these chapters. I'm sorry. This is the big idea from these chapters, and so that's, that's the string that I'm going to put all these pearls onto. Okay? I'm going to give it to you in two parts. First part is a man being prepared by God. That's Joseph. A man being prepared by God. Chapter 37, verse 32, this is, oh, by the way, chapter 36, someone's saying, what, what happened to chapter 36? Chapter 36 was, remember I told you, in the family tree of faith, whatever happened to Abraham, okay, whatever happened to Isaac, wait, whatever happened to Ishmael? And so Ishmael gets a little tiny bit of one chapter because Moses tells us what happened to the ungodly line. He tells us about the godly line. And he says, well, whatever happened to Ishmael? Well, here's what happened to Ishmael. And then he goes on, okay? Whatever happened to Jacob? We've had this huge, long story. Whatever happened to Jacob? Because he's the family tree of faith. Well, then whatever happened to Esau? Chapter 36. Here's what happened to Esau. And we get this very brief description of whatever happened to Esau. And then we move on, and we don't really hear about Esau again until he shows up kind of as an enemy of Israel. So chapter 37, verse 2, this is the account of Jacob and his family, which is really the Joseph story. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. 
He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, etc. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Hmm. Probably not a good thing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Again, probably not a good idea. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. Well, he gets a special coat that none of them got which, by the way, meant kind of like he's their ruler. He's got the special cloak. One night, Joseph has a dream. He tells his brothers about it. Joseph, why would you think this is a good idea? Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. What do, you, what do you think, guys? They're like, yes, Joseph, that sounds like a wonderful dream. We love that God would give you that dream. No. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon, Joseph had another dream, and again, he told his brothers about it. Again, Joseph, you're a little slow on the uptake here. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed low before me. This time he decides to tell Jacob his dream. But his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Anybody else wonder about dreams later on in the New Testament? Yes, they do. We'll see. Someday we might get to the New Testament. Who knows? Soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Oh, that's another great idea. Shechem was a wonderful place where wonderful things happened to the family before, right? No. <laughs> Off they go to Shechem. Uh, when they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along, Jacob said. Then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way. Joseph goes to Shechem. Then they go to Hebron. He keeps looking. He keeps looking. He, gets, he finally finds them in Dothan. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to tell him how much they love him. Oh, no. They made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Reuben hears of their scheme. He comes to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him. Why should we shed any... Has shed any blood, any innocent blood. Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben, I wish Reuben were my older brother. 
Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. But guess what's in the bottom of the cistern? Mud. Okay, so you go in. I don't know how he went in, but let's assume he went in feet first. I don't know how deep he, you know, he would have sank. But he's stuck. And his cistern could have been, you know, it could have been 20 or 30 feet tall. Okay, so don't imagine he's stuck in a little six-foot hole and he's looking over the top going, hey, guys, hey, what happened to you? He is at the bottom of a deep hole and stuck in mud. Okay, let's see. Where were we? Now the cistern was in the water. Okay, they were sitting down. Can you imagine this? Some of you have brothers and sisters like this. They could have a picnic while you're at the bottom of a cistern screaming. Get me out. Help me. Can you imagine this? And you're sitting down. Hey, pass me the salami on rye. You're having a picnic while your brother is screaming for his life at the bottom of this well. Okay. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and they saw a caravan of camels coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite, ooh, Ishmaelite traders coming or taking a load of gum, balsam, gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? His blood would just give us a guilty conscience instead of hurting him. Let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, (laughs) our own flesh and blood. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery in Egypt. I love these guys. What a close-knit family. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. As I recall, somebody else was sold for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. Sometime later, so it seems that Reuben didn't sit down for the picnic. He went off somewhere. He comes back to get Joseph out of the cistern. Joseph is gone. He goes back to the brothers. What will I do? So what do they do? They kill a young goat. Oh, gosh, that young goat shows up again. Didn't Jacob's mother make the tasty meal out of a young goat? Yes, she did. Young goat again. Young goat factors into this. They dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. Then they sent the robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Like we've never seen it before. Is this really the one that you gave your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he said, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him. Are you kidding me? What hypocrites. Who's the one who's brought all this grief onto Jacob? The son's. I will go to my grave 
mourning for my son. And then he would weep. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders get to Egypt. They sell Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was the captain of the palace guard. Hmm. First course I've just described for you that Joseph has been enrolled in. 101. Its course title is The Pit. The course description, if you had the divine course catalog, here's what it would tell you in the course description. It's a place that you're given no advance warning. And it was thrust upon Joseph. It's a place of despair without the right perspective and a place from which he couldn't rescue himself. He's stuck in mud 20 to 30 feet down. There is no way out. Why does God enroll Joseph in 101? To remind him that God had a plan for his life. To get him to look up, pray, and seek God. What's the only direction Joseph can look? The only place he can look, only direction he can look is up. And he uses 101 to turn Joseph's life to his direction. Not Joseph's direction, but God's direction for him. So he enrolls Joseph in 101. Joseph graduates from 101 or completes 101, and so God enrolls him in 201, which comes after chapter 38. We have this sort of parenthetical thing on Judah and Tamar, which is not a good story at all, but it gives us, by the time you get to the end of chapter 38, it gives us uh, the story of Perez and Zerah, and Perez is one of the, in the family tree of faith. And so we're told in this awful story of uh, Judah how Perez and his brother were born. And uh, that's how we come, that's how we find Perez. And you say, how do you know that? Well, in Ruth, Perez is the first one in those lines. And if you look in Chronicles, Chronicles will give you a humongous, it's like eight chapters long of a lineage. It's the family tree of faith in another place. So chapter 38 is inserted here so that we understand sort of the origin of Perez because he's going to be in the family tree of faith. Chapter 39, back to the Joseph story. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord... Now I want you to notice your Bible and how Lord, L-O-R-D, is spelled. Some of you it's all caps. Some of you it's a large L and then all caps, O-R-D. Do you see that? L-O-R-D. Do you see how it's... It's not just like you'd write it L-O-R-D. It's, it's set off with a typeface because it's Yahweh. And you say, so what? 
Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> the only way Potiphar would have known about Yahweh is Joseph told him. And he realized that Yahweh was with Joseph. What is Joseph doing? Joseph is talking about God in his workplace. It's the only way Potiphar would have known who he was. Because he recognizes the Lord, special caps, the Lord is with Joseph. Likely, Joseph had been sharing about the Lord with Potiphar. Potiphar recognizes, he notices this, and he realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. Whose sake? Not Potiphar's sake. He didn't bless him for Potiphar's sake. He blessed him for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly, and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Parenthesis. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him inappropriately. She, in fact, invited him to come to her. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against Potiphar. Oh, did I misread that? Who's the sin against? First, God. Then Potiphar. Joseph understands a lot of theology here. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused. He kept out of her way. One day, while no one else was around, he went in to do his work. She come in, comes in and grabs him and rips away his clothes, and so he runs naked out of the house, uh, and then she's got to make up a story, and so she calls to her servants uh, that he, he tried to force himself on her. When he heard me scream, he ran outside. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you've brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said, but when I screamed, he ran outside leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. Some speculate that Potiphar might have uh, agreed with Joseph or might have believed Joseph's story because he puts him in the place where they put the king's prisoners, not in the place where they put the prisoner prisoners. <laughs> They put him in the, where they put the king's prisoners. Maybe Potiphar had a hint that something was up here. But nonetheless, he throws him in prison. So he takes Joseph and he throws him in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison. 
and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Joseph gets an A in 101, the pit, and so God enrolls him into 201, called Potiphar's house. The course description, it's a public place, like a workplace, where Joseph's life overlapped the unbelieving world. It's a place where he's watched, where he's in a fishbowl. Why would God require this class of Joseph? To prove or test his faith and integrity against temptation. To promote his spiritual maturity, his witness. To prepare him for future service, to learn to hold his tongue. Joseph is imprisoned. Remember, he's 17 when he starts having dreams. Uh, It's possible that all of this takes place. There might be a couple of years that go by. So maybe Joseph is 19. When does Joseph come to service with Pharaoh? At the age of 30. How many years? Is Joseph in prison? Eleven years. Not one week. Eleven years. Wait a minute. Are you telling me somebody who is enrolled in God's curriculum, let's just call it they're right in the middle of God's will, goes to prison for something he didn't do? Yeah. And God doesn't let him out immediately. No. Why? Great question. Joseph is going to be enrolled in 301. He's finishing up 201. And so God enrolls him in 301. He's in the prison. The warden is putting him in charge of everyone and everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with, this, with, with these two officials, and he put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. A dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a grapevine in front of me. The vine had three branches, began to bud and blossom. Da, 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 da. I was holding Pharaoh's arm. Then I placed a cup in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. 
and please remember me and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison, but I did nothing to deserve it. Makes sense that Joseph would be pleading his case. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given the first dream such a positive interpretation, he said to Joseph, I had a dream too. And his dream doesn't have such a good ending. You're going to wind up, your body will be on a pole, etc. Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Joseph was enrolled in the course called The Pit. All he can do is look up. God uses that to redirect his life. Yes? Yes. He gets an A in 101. God enrolls him in 201, Potiphar's house. There he faces temptation. His witness is challenged. And his tongue is challenged. Joseph gets another A in 201. And God says, wonderful, 301. And he enrolls him in 301. 301, the prison. What is that place? It's a private place. It's a dungeon. It's a place where Joseph not only felt chained up, I mean, not only was chained up, but felt chained up and walled in. He felt alone, out of sight, and forgotten. Allow me to read you Psalm 105, verses 17 through 22. Then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. You wonder what Joseph, what was it like in the dungeon? He's got those metal things around his ankles. You know those things that are hooked to chains on the wall? And his neck is in another one, also chained to the wall. Woohoo! Man, <laughs> thanks, Lord. 301, he is in the prison. He is chained up in this prison. Place his neck in an iron collar until the time came to fulfill his dreams. The Lord tested Joseph's character. Then Pharaoh sent for him and set him free. The ruler of the nation opened his prison door. Joseph was put in charge of all the king's household. He became ruler over all the king's possessions. He could instruct the king's aides as he pleased and teach the king's advisors. Why was Joseph kept in the prison, in the dungeon? Psalm 105, the second half of verse 19. 
who test and refine Joseph's character. It's a required class, perhaps, because in 101, God tested Joseph's surrender, his own grip on his plans. In 201, he tested Joseph's fidelity. Could he be drawn away by something he was not to have, or could he be driven away by false accusations? And so in 301, the thing that hasn't been tried and tested yet as much is Joseph's character. May I remind you, Joseph was never cleared of the charges he was accused of. Do you ever read that the Pharaoh came down and said, you know, Joseph, gosh, sorry, (laughs) bummer, we made a mistake. No, he is never cleared for for this false accusation. He's imprisoned for about 11 years. His reward for righteous behavior was to be flung into a prison. You can imagine this class that I'm having with these young men and women. Welcome to leadership. To be used powerfully, you will be tested profoundly. God has a 101, a 201, and a 301 for you. I don't know what they are, but I know they'll look like this. God is going to refine your character, my young friends, in the prison. It's in the prison where Joseph learns to desire God more than a leadership position, a role, or a function. It's the place where Joseph finally abandons trying to nudge the arm of providence, as R.T. Kendall says. Nudge the arm of providence. Lord, I want to be let out of here. What does God say to him? I can't prove it, but it's about two years. He's in nine years. He appeals to the cupbearer and the baker. He says, get me out of here. And God says, I see you trying to nudge the arm of providence. Two more years, Joseph. You're not ready yet. Get back on the wall. and Put the chain back around your neck. You're not ready to serve in the capacity that I want you to serve in. Again, is Joseph right where God wants him? Yes. Yes. Is God unfair or unjust? He is not. I can't explain his ways, but he is not unfair or unjust. Did Joseph, the 17-year-old, need some refining? Yes, he did. (laughs) What God did was right. This place where Joseph has to learn to stop trying to nudge the arm of providence. It's the place where he learns to have contentment without credit or recognition. How does that work in the United States? 
Maybe you're working today. How does that work in your workplace? I read so many articles on how to take credit without sounding like you're taking credit. You ever seen these articles? It's how to brag about yourself in a way that other people don't go, hey, you're bragging about yourself. Is that, is that crazy? Do you know what that is? Nudging the arm of providence. Maybe you used to work somewhere and you say, I remember that. You don't stand up for yourself. You get run over. You get taken advantage of. I don't want anybody to raise their hand, but I'll bet half of this room something like that has happened to you in your workplace. What is the prison? It's the place where Joseph had to learn to have contentment without credit or recognition. Why did he need to spend 11 years there? Because it's the place out of which he'll be prepared to stand before a king as his servant. This is a man being prepared by God for something very, very important in the life of the nation of Israel and for, of course, his own family. A man being prepared by God. The second half of this is a man being used by God in Pharaoh's palace. Joseph's character, undeniable. Joseph had people who hurt him, including his own family. Careful, the Bible might start meddling here. Joseph has been betrayed by his brothers, his real brothers, his real brothers. He's been hurt even for doing his job well. His reputation has been defaced by a false accusation of which he is never cleared. He's been hurt by the forgetfulness of others. Yet, what's the man we see coming out of the prison when he's finally summoned by Pharaoh? A man who's gracious, humble, and forgiving, who carries no grudges. One oh one, two oh one, and three oh one took Joseph from a at least naive seventeen year old <laughs> to a savvy thirty year old who was ready to stand before a king as his servant. Huge lesson from the prison. The bitter cannot bless others. Did Joseph have reason to be bitter? Yes. Did Joseph choose bitterness? No. And therefore he could come out and bless. Joseph's character has matured tremendously in these past 13 years, but 11 of real hardship. A lesson that goes all throughout the Bible. 
the unforgiving are only shackling themselves with their own ball and chain. Joseph, who has been rightly and truly hurt by those closest to him, carries no grudges, and comes out ready to bless, not with revenge, born of bitterness. You say, Bill, this really doesn't happen all that much. Oh, really? So this morning, how about that for fun? Talk to somebody this morning. Guess what they're having trouble with? Forgiving others. <laughs> Even this morning. I probably have this conversation once a week with someone because they cannot seem to get over forgiving those who have hurt them. I think Laurie included for you, um, this is back in the days most of you in here don't remember. Um, I used to preach. It was never good, but I used to preach, and then I hired better people to do it. And so now I don't get to preach anymore, and that's okay, because they're way better. But I did a sermon many years ago called Overcoming a Painful Past, and it was on the life of Joseph. And so if you, I don't even know if it still exists in the uh, digital world. Probably not. It's really probably not worth listening to. What is worth reading are these two things right here. First, when you think about forgiving others, choose to forgive those who've hurt you. And you say, why should I do that? They hurt me. Why should I choose to forgive others who have hurt me? Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. That is a command. You are not asked politely to forgive. You are told to forgive in the same way you have been forgiven. You say, but Bill, you don't understand the circumstances. You're right, I don't. Shall I go back and read this again? Because it doesn't include anything but what to not do. It says, you forgive. And you forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Did God know all the circumstances of things in my life against him? Yes, he did. Did he choose to forgive unconditionally? Yes, he did. How are we to forgive? But, Bill, you don't... How are we to forgive? As God in Christ forgave us. No conditions. Forgive. You are told, and so am I, told to forgive. But, Bill, you don't... Stop. So I read it again. You have to deal with truth. Here is the truth. We are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. That is how I am to treat you. And that's how we are to treat one another. Whoa. Now the Bible's meddling good. 
When you choose to forgive those who've hurt you, you are willing. Notice this word is italicized because this is Joseph's whole point in this thing with his brothers. You're willing to take the next step. As God opens doors, seek reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two. And it takes the other person or person's repentance. What was Joseph looking for when he dealt with his brothers? Were they sad? Were they upset? Were they humbled over the way they had treated their father? With him? Was there sorrow? Was there repentance? If there wasn't, Joseph wouldn't have taken the next step. But there was, so he stepped into them. First, he forgave them, and he's willing to reconcile. But being willing to reconcile and reconciling are two different things. That takes forgiveness is, is a, a, a one person sport, <laughs> it's you. Reconciliation takes two, and if the other person doesn't repent, you're willing to reconcile, but if that person doesn't, then you don't have to rush it or push it. Let God work, as he did in these stories, which took years. I am not telling you if someone has hurt you badly that you should pick up the phone tonight and call them and say, I want to reconcile with you. I am not telling you that. I am telling them tonight you need to forgive them and you need to be willing to reconcile. And if God opens a door, you need to find out if they're repentant. Do they understand what they have done to you? And are they sorry for that? And if they are, and you say, well, it doesn't measure up to my standard. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Are they sorry? And if they are, then seek appropriate reconciliation. Some people have hurt us, some of us, in such bad and evil ways. You can reconcile with them over the phone or by a letter. I'm not telling you to enter into situations that are bad or unsafe. Forgiveness is not optional. Reconciliation takes two. Forgiving others is a hang-up even Christians have. We all have because we've all been hurt. You say, how do, I, how do I know? Bill, how will I know if I've forgiven that person? Do you wish grace upon them or harm? Think of the people who've hurt you. Do you still wish? You're like, yeah, can't wait till they meet God face to face because he's going to give them what for and I'm going to be happy. I know that. I've had people hurt me. I know those thoughts. That's not right. I want to wish grace on them. Lord, as you be gracious to that man, that woman, that person, be gracious to them. Because I want him to be gracious to me. Be gracious. If you can wish grace upon them and really mean it, you'll know you're moving forward in forgiveness. It's just a little rabbit trail on forgiving others. God's had Joseph in the prison to develop his character. He comes out 
Look at this. Oh, golly. He comes out. Pharaoh has dreams, right? You know this, the seven cows and the seven heads of grain. And nobody can tell him what it means. And finally, they bring Joseph up. Joseph sent for, or Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, chapter 41, verse 14. And he was quickly brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night. No one can tell me what it means, but I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. Who is the man who comes out of the prison? I mean, you're, you're standing in front of, okay, I, I, don't, I don't care. You pick the president that you like, okay? I'm not going to name any names here, okay? But the president you like, and somebody says, Bill, uh, President, mm-mm, you fill in the blank, wants to meet with you. He's heard all about the good things you've done in Fort Worth. Well, it's about time, I'd say. <laughs> about time I get some credit, some recognition. Feels pretty good. I'm going to talk to the president I respect, and he's going to ask me all kinds of things, and I'm going to tell him. I'm going to school him on something. How does Joseph come out? It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. How open is Joseph in his new workplace about God? Pretty open. (laughs) Hmm. So Pharaoh tells him his dream. Joseph interprets it. Uh, Let's see. Verse 33 of chapter 41. Therefore, look at this. Look, this is just amazing, the humility now in Joseph. Therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint, and he tells him all the things to do. Joseph's suggestions were received well by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, Can we find anyone else like this man, obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Joseph doesn't even presume that he's the guy. He just says, Pharaoh should find himself a guy who's like this, and he should do these things. What is Joseph prepared to do, does it seem? Go back to the prison. Instead, Pharaoh goes, how about that guy? (laughs) I like that guy. He seemed to have all the answers, and he's filled with the Spirit of God. Let's put him in charge. What a good idea. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge. You know what happens. Joseph saves not only Egypt from famine, but who else? His family. Joseph now has an intimate, well-known public relationship with God. He has stood in front of the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth at that time. You could pick the person you want. And you stood right there. And the very first response you had to this powerful person, king, queen, whoever it is, is... I can't do this, but God can do this. That's your first response to the person who's talking to you. We know Joseph is an outstanding administrator. He serves God and Pharaoh with integrity of heart and skill of hands. This is a psalm that was written, a verse written about David. And God uses him to preserve Jacob's family as well as to bless the Egyptians. 
What God promised, God brought to pass. What I tell these young men and women, they're more concerned about their gifts and their training than their character. Kind of like Joseph. And if you'll imagine a tree, your gifts and your experiences and your training and all these things are like the arbor of a tree, right? All the leaves, all the sticks. What holds up a big tree like this? Deep, deep roots of character. What happens when the storm comes and there's this giant tree with little root? Tips over, comes out of the ground. I asked one of the pastors here, you would know who he is. Uh, I asked him, this was a few years ago, we were just chatting, and I said, um, you know, whatever, if you put your scale, you know, yourself on a scale of one to ten, you know, say you give yourself a seven, or whatever you want to do, you certainly in seminary knew some eights and nines and tens. Yes, yes, I did. I said, so these were at least men you knew who, in your opinion, were far more gifted and talented than you. He said, oh, my gosh, far more, far more. And I said, could you name 10, 10 of those people? He said, yes. And he went, so he, he was counting them up mentally. And I said, of those 10, how many are still in ministry today? Zero. Why? Baboom. They were far more concerned about their arbor than they were about the roots. And to go through 101 and 201 and 301 seemed, I don't want to go through that. What I really want to be, I really want a, a big role and a big place and a, a big audience because I think I have a lot to say. And their trees were so large and so gifted, but there were no roots. And when the storms came, the trees just blew down. And they are no longer in ministry. That is a tragic thing. A tragic thing. It's tragic in a workplace. It's tragic everywhere. It just boils down to this. God's leaders must first become God's servants. Character qualities are not learned in a book or in a classroom. They're learned in the lab. They're learned in the lab when you put them into practice. So I have some questions for you. How is God preparing you? Has he enrolled you in 101, the pit? It's unexpected and a place from which you can't rescue yourself. Be reminded, God has a plan for your life. Look up to him, seek him, and pray. Has he enrolled you in 201, where he teaches you to handle temptation rightly, where he teaches you to maintain your witness, 
teaches you to control your tongue. How about 301? Has he enrolled you in the prison? A place of waiting, feeling alone, out of sight, forgotten. Are you learning the great gain of godliness with contentment? And are you learning to desire God most? Not a position or a role, but you're learning to desire God most and wait on Him for the release. If that's freshmen, sophomores, and juniors, if you're an upperclassman, here's what upperclassmen know. They've unreservedly made themselves available to God for new service assignments. They've fled temptation, absorbed unfairness, and controlled their tongues, and still give their all daily. They've been faithful to serve and bless others whether God has put, wherever God has put them, even if it's out of sight. They've served with integrity the people in the places and positions God has chosen for them. And they've come to the point where they can truly thank God for their past hardships and heartaches to say with Joseph, you meant this for evil or for harm, but God meant it for good. And that's not just a Sunday school answer that you say, I know this is the right answer, so I'm going to say it. But this is coming from your heart. And you can say, God meant this for good. Upperclassmen have been made ready to serve the King of Kings. God's leaders must first become God's servants. Let me show you a few fun things will be done for tonight. Uh, all throughout the Joseph story, there are pictures of the Lord Jesus. Let me show you some. The lesser is, of course, Joseph. The greater of the servants is the Lord Jesus. Both are a father's beloved son. Both are hated by their brothers. Both are rejected by their brothers. Both are sold as slaves for 20 pieces of silver. Both were faithful servants who ministered to others. Both were victorious over temptation. Both were falsely accused, arrested, and treated unjustly. Both suffered before they entered their glory. Both went public at about the age of 30. Is this amazing to you? It's almost like somebody knew what they were doing and they <laughs> wrote this story. Both have been exalted to a throne and made responsible for saving the nations. Both have been given a Gentile bride.
neither was recognized by his brothers on their first visit. Those sold as slaves, they met their brothers later as kings. The Lord Jesus, that is still future, those sold as a slave. He will meet his brothers next as king. Both put their brothers through a trial. Joseph's was a trial for repentance. Jesus will be the same thing. It's called the tribulation. Both have and will reveal themselves to their brothers at their second coming. Both the brothers will bow before them. Both protected and preserved, Joseph protected and preserved Israel all the days of his life. Jesus will protect and preserve Israel all the days of his never-ending life. This amazing? You should be saying yes. This is amazing. Some final comparisons. Joseph completely forgave his blood brothers. Jesus completely forgives his blood brothers. You and me. Joseph invited his brothers to live with him where he was. Jesus invites us to live with him where he is now. Joseph interceded for his brothers before Pharaoh. Jesus intercedes for us before his father. Joseph was unashamed of his brothers before Pharaoh. Jesus is unashamed of his brothers before his father. Joseph presented his brothers faultless to Pharaoh. Jesus presents us faultless to his father. Joseph gave his brothers preferential treatment out of the overflow of his greatness. Jesus gives us preferential treatment out of the overflow of his greatness. Joseph's authority provided continual access to the throne for his brothers. Jesus' authority provides continual access to the throne for his brothers. Some amazing comparisons between the lesser servant, Joseph, and the greater, the greatest servant, the Lord Jesus, who in that sense was also put through the unwritten curriculum and came out making the highest grades that have ever been made in his classes. And so we're finishing Genesis tonight, the family tree of faith. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Chapters 2 through 11, there's an anticipation of a covenant people. Big takeaway from chapters 2 through 11 in terms of the Hebrews, in terms of the Israelites, is what did God do in chapters 2 through 11? He moved heaven and earth for his people. Right? Yes, he did. So there's an anticipation of a covenant people. Beginning in chapter 12, Abraham comes on the scene, gets the covenant, and that unfolds through Abraham, Isaac, and then we have an incubation of the covenant people with the story of Jacob and Joseph and God preparing the way for his people 
to incubate in Egypt. Right now they're a family of 70. He's going to create a strong people and eventually a nation out of all of these people. But he has to have a safe place to put them for right now. And that place is Egypt. And so he sends Joseph coincidentally, providentially, ahead to prepare the way. Joseph was fortunate. He got to see how God used him. You and I may not be so fortunate. It may be on the other side that you say, oh, that's why that happened. And you don't know how many other people, what God has done in your life that you thought, why did this happen? What was the meaning of this? Why this? Why this? Why this? All of those loose ends one day will be tied together and you'll get to see how God used you like he used Joseph. The incubation of the covenant people and so God moves the covenant family of faith to Egypt to await his call in the book of Exodus. For next time, read Job. What? What? Why not Exodus? What just happened here? Probably Job is a contemporary of Jacob. Perhaps Job was even written before the book, before Moses put the Pentateuch together. But I wanted to lay a historical foundation first and then tell you that Job, probably a contemporary of Jacob, very interesting story, Job. And the question you should be asking yourself is, now wait a minute, if he's a contemporary of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I'm kind of three down or three up in the family tree. Didn't God say he's going to work through Abraham? Why, how does Job, a Gentile, know something about God? And in fact, knows quite a bit about God. Crazy. We'll talk about that coming up. So we'll see you in a week. Uh, come with bells on. We'll have a good time. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the lesson of the life and times of Joseph, um, how that's uh, so been the story of my life and so been the story of so many people's lives in this room and um, in your church. Um, Thank you for your unwritten curriculum. Uh, forgive us when we don't understand and we kick against you and, and shake our fist in your face and say, why have you done this to me without realizing um, the good and the blessing that you have in store, uh, not simply for us, but for your people. We're just so short-sighted. Uh, please... Forgive us. Thank you for your long-suffering and your kindness to us, your mercy and your grace. We love you. Please continue uh, to make us your servants. And if you have us lead something, uh, may we lead with strong, strong Christ-like character um, in a way that will honor you and bless your people. We thank you and we pray for all these things this week. In Jesus' name, amen.